My name's Steve. I am one of the elders here at Echo Church. I am standing on stage, standing on stage with my wonderful wife, Kelly, who is now a teaching minister here. That's what your almost non-existent business card would say. But here's one of the interesting things is I've, we've been married for over two decades now, and it's been fun because I think Kelly is an amazing preacher. I don't know if you guys are going through that. Look at that. That was gratuitous, wasn't it? I did. But here's the thing about this is that as we, we've had a great time because I actually taught preaching in seminary. So we've had all these great conversations. And the more you go through it, she'll, she'll bring up things and you're just like, yes, this is interesting. And one of the difficult things when you're speaking like this is how can you tell personal stories in a way that really capture everything? So it's interesting that as I was preparing for this sermon, I was like, there's something that Kelly has gone through that is great. And then I'm afraid because I'm like, am I stealing a sermon story from you? Which essentially I am. But sometimes it's better when you're in an interview process because then you get to share in such a way and then you don't have to say, and this is why all this is about me. So in essence, you're helping me, but I'm helping you. Because uh, one of the things that you have done for a long time, or wanted to do for a long time, one of the pursuits she would always say to me, you would say, Steve, I want to be in a movie. Like, that is my goal, is to be in a movie. And I'm like, all right, we all have dreams and goals, but you were persistent enough that you actually, when they had casting calls here in the town, you went and visited with the agency, you presented headshots, you talked about skills, and you, you did this how long ago? Uh, for the last four years? For four years. So you talked about it years in advance. And by the way, we're using the one mic because that'll record, so it's great. I'm going to hand this to you in a second. But just this last year, after applying for many different films, you finally got a call back and had a chance to be in a film. Will you explain that to us? Process? Just, yeah, how that start? Well, you can put, they would put open casting in the news, and they would say, send your headshot and your measurements and your whatever in life to these emails and I would find out about it late and so this one I, I started following the casting director on Facebook so that she started posting those things earlier so I'm trying to get in on it and yeah I even had an audition in front of her and she was very encouraging but still nothing for a year and a half so I put my name into the one that came out that they were filming this spring which is now called Dark Waters. They had a different name for it before, but it had Anne Hathaway, Mark Ruffalo, and Tim Robbins were the, and one other person, Victor, now I can't remember his last name, were the four main celebrities who were in town filming. And they were, you'd see them all over, and suddenly I get this email, and my heart starts racing, and it was like, we need you to come to a fitting. And I was like, okay, so I was, it's a law, it's a whole lawsuit is a true story of a Cincinnati lawyer and he sued over pollution issues. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll be in like a court case. And then we get there and they had me trying on ball gowns. I was like, what is happening? Um, do you want to put that up there? Yeah. So I got in for a fitting and they, I tried different things on and they, I got to I was like, please pick the silver one and not the ugly brown one. Um, and so, yeah, the one that I, there's me. So they had us, the only photos we were allowed to take on set were of ourselves because we were supposed to film for two days and they wanted continuity. So anything they did, as soon as they put up your hair, as soon as they put anything on you, you had to go take a selfie. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. But all of us are standing in this bathroom in the, what's the, Netherland? Since Omni Netherland Hotel downtown. 
And so there was this big ballroom scene, and there was 150 of us. All the men are in tuxedos, all the women are of all ages were in all these ball gowns, and it's supposed to be late 90s was the goal. So I was fascinated with, we got there, and there was a room about this big, and lined up along the wall were just makeup artists and hair people. And for two hours, we all took turns standing in line and going to get our hair done. And they pulled mine so tight, I thought I had a headache. But and they, and they just kept messing with it and spraying it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. And then they, so they had us go through all, and I was like, that's two full hours. And then they stood us all in a line, and this head guy comes by. And he is like one of those, like, model TV shows, like the judges, he's very judgy. And he just looks at people and he just goes, you, go over there. And he walks online, he's like, I don't like that, go over there. Go get a new purse, go get different shoes. And he just, and then he walked up to me and he goes, come with me. And I was like, oh crap, <laughs> what'd I do? So he takes me over and he's like, the dress, I don't know if you can tell, but so the top is a separate piece from the bottom. And he's like, I don't think this is period style. Gosh, it fits. I like it. I'm not going to trip over it by walking. And then they looked on the rack. What size are you? They look, and everything there that's available my size that they brought extra. I mean, this, this is after I'd gone on a separate day to get a fitting, and they'd already chosen this dress for me. And then he said, oh, they're all black. Okay. I guess the color will be, you'll be fine. Okay, whatever. Go. And like, I was like, it wasn't a ringing endorsement. It was just like, fine, go. So then we're standing in line. I'm standing back in line again. Can't wait to go actually on set. And then they look and they're like, oh no, we forgot to do tattoos. Anybody got a tattoo? Well, this one's kind of dark. So then I was fascinated because this, look, it disappeared. Like I was so fascinated watching this lady take my arm and put about 50 different layers of makeup. And first it's really, really dark. And I'm like, why is that? That doesn't look like my skin. And she just kept layering lighter and lighter and lighter. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. So that was, that was random. What else do you want to talk about? Well, so this actually, and you did not get to choose when this happened. So it was like when the date came, you texted me and you're just like, we need to talk right now because not only it was any date, but the date happened to be what date? Kaylin's 13th birthday. <laughs> and, you know, we, get, we all have children, but she's our only one. So it's not like it's like I got to focus on her, right? You know, I'm like, oh, no, we always do like a birthday dinner or something fun, even though it was a school day. And then, as yeah, so it was her birthday, and you, like, I took her to school. So you were out before we were even out to school at 6 a.m., and you kept texting, you're like, I'll be back at seven, and which became eight, which became 10. And then it was like almost 11 o'clock at night when you finally made it home on our daughter's birthday. So I'm glad you fulfilled this dream while sacrificing your ability to be a good parent. However, how did you redeem that situation? So I happened to be dismissed early. Uh, they were ending the night because we had been in this room for three hours and it was maybe five lines of dialogue, but they kept filming at every different angle. And we, there was, we were at this banquet scene and there was 10 of us per table and between takes, we were getting a little slap happy and eating fake, sal or fake eating real salad, except the guy next to me kept eating it. I'm like, stop eating it. It's really gross. And they keep spraying hairspray over it. So yours probably doesn't taste very good. But we finally were done, and they said, oh, we need one more angle. But they dismissed all the celebrities, so the, all 
you know, they all were very gracious and said bye to all of us and left. And then they looked and they're like, this table, this table, you're not in the shot. Go ahead and go get changed. Because now 150 of us have to go back and get changed, stand in line and get, fill out our form and be done. So I rush thinking, okay, she's not in bed yet. Or if she is, stay up for a few more minutes. I just want to go tell Kaylin about this day. So I'm running, 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 changing real fast get in line, and then I'm like, okay, run down the hall, the elevator doors are closing, I throw my arm in, and it pops back open, and I hop in, and there's Mark Ruffalo. Hi. (laughs) And this is what I blurted out. I'm sorry I just stopped this elevator and you're trying to get home. It's my daughter's birthday, she's turning 13, and, but I've been hanging out with Bruce Banner all day, so I'm sure she'll forgive me. And he just smiled, and he goes, you want to take a selfie? Or you want to take a video? I'll tell her happy birthday. I was like, oh my gosh, yes. So there's the moment. So it was pretty cool. And he's very gracious. They said for any kid who recognized him as the Hulk, any time he was shooting around Cincinnati, he would stop and would spend time with the kids who knew who he was. Thank you for sharing that. You can return to your seat now. Oh, wow. There's applause for that. How much did you get paid for that day of work? $80. Everybody knows that showbiz is rather lucrative. Let me try to weave all this together. We're starting a new series today, and this series will actually last us. We're going to take a break during Christmas, but we will actually follow this on the school year. So we will be doing the Book of Acts starting now and wrapping up in May. And we're going to split that in half. So between now and the end of November is going to be the first part of the book of Acts. If you have a a pew Bible in front of you, I didn't even catch the page number. It's somewhere in the New Testament. If somebody has Acts 1, 770 in a blue Bible in front of you or in the pew. And we're in Acts chapter 1. And the, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because, and this was, by the way, before Kelly's story thinking about this. And as we as a teaching team were talking about what is the book of Acts really about, and we want to say that it's showing us behind the scenes. Because so many times we talk about the Bible and we think that the Bible is like this holy book, this thing that, you know, it asks so much of us. But the thing I really appreciate about the Bible very often is that it gives us a transparent view of what it means to be a human. And that's something that we struggle with. And I think we actually see that transparency within the scriptures. So as we are getting ready to study the book of Acts, and if you, you know, are unfamiliar, we're going to introduce some of that this morning. But the book of Acts is the story of the beginning of the church. So as we sit in this church community today, has its origins 2,000 years ago, and we have the play-by-play, the screenplay, if you will, of how all of this took place. So we get a chance to see everything that happened at the very beginning of the church, in the beginning of this story, and it gives us an opportunity to see what it means then to be followers of Jesus today. So as we go behind the scenes in our study, we're going to start at the very beginning, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
Now, if you were watching, you know, your binge of Netflix, this is that little square where you can click, you know, skip season recap, because that's what happens here at the beginning of the book. It's important for us to understand a few things about this book of Acts, but in doing so, there's a connection to a previous book that was written and authored by this guy, Luke, and this is an actual photograph that he took. You know, they're like, look pensive. You know, this is a rendition of Luke. It's very often, I don't understand how they picked it. You know, like for some reason they're like, no, Luke, he is balding and this is how we're going to, you know, picture him. I don't know about that. Interesting about Luke is we don't know much about him even from the Bible. We know that he was a natural person that exists. He accompanied a man named Paul who was one of the chief authors of the New Testament. We're gonna hear about him after the beginning of next year when we get into that. So Paul's in the second half of the book, but we know that he existed. We know that he was a doctor. And when we think of doctor, you know, I don't know how we picture that, if it's bones from Star Trek or if it's house or however you envision this. The, you know, doctors in the ancient world, it was much different because they had, they had a very limited thing. Usually it was medicinal in nature. You were trying to alleviate pain. So in some some instances you might you could speculate that Luke was actually you know a first century drug dealer we don't know much about Luke but the one thing we do know is that this book is attributed to him as is the previous book even though his name doesn't appear into it but that came through the early years of church tradition whoever he said those are Luke's books and there's a connection to the previous book and that comes with the name of this guy Theophilus and um and I thought I had that next slide here. I want to get into that. But Theophilus, we don't even know if the recipient of this book was a real person because Theophilus is Greek, literally meaning lover of God. Okay. So you're like, oh, that's a good thing you became a, a Jesus follower because otherwise if you were you know, Satanist, it would be awkward to have your name being lover of God. We, we think that maybe Luke is using Theophilus as a literary character to mean, hey, for all of you who love Jesus and love the Lord, this is the book for you. And he proceeds by starting his new book on the church by saying, hey, my previous book, it was all about Jesus. It was all about the story of Jesus and who he was and what he did and why Jesus was phenomenal. Now, this is something that we point out if you're familiar with the Bible or even not, there's two Testaments. There's an Old Testament that describes what happened before Jesus was born. There's the New Testament that talks, begins with his life story. And what's interesting to people is that there's actually four books that start off introducing the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are commonly known as the Gospels, the good news about who Jesus was. And I find it fascinating that of those four books, three of them are dominated by stories. Even the fourth one pertains stories because it describes who Jesus was to a T by not just saying Jesus was you know, a, a, a mid-sized man and he had a good demeanor and disposition. No, it's a books that just tell the story of Jesus. And we need to pause and think about the story aspect of this because our lives end up being dominated by stories. I was reading like years ago, and this was before, you know, this, even the internet age, there was a man named Leonard Sweet who was a theologian, and he, he wrote this phrase in a book. He said, the future belongs to the storytellers. He wrote this in the early to mid-90s, and I've always remembered this quote because it's really an understated quote. Because now in this digital age, even though you think that because we're so aware of society, we're so scientific that we would just want facts to dominate everything, that actually 
Our whole lives are influenced by stories. Nassim Taleb, who wrote a book called The Black Swan, he's a, he's a psychologist who writes, metaphors and stories are far more potent than ideas. They're also easier to remember and more fun to read. Ideas come and go, but stories stay. You think about that in your own life. If we just started to talk about your collective knowledge, the probably we're going to lean in is on things you've learned and experiences that would be expressed in story mode. There's a guy named Michael Covell, which I included this quote because I find it fascinating. I'm in finance now, so I read a bunch of finance, even investing books, and I'm reading this finance investing book. So it's all supposed to be about numbers and dollars, and Covell writes, the human mind can store facts around narratives, stories with a beginning and an end that have an emotional resonance. You can still memorize numbers, but you need stories. So here's somebody who you know, dwells and lives in a more mathematical context, and yet is saying, you know what, I can give you Excel files out the yin-yang, but you're not going to remember those cells as much as you will the stories. And then finally, Daniel Kahneman, who was a Nobel Prize winner in economics, who actually talks about this link, concept of heuristics, how we remember facts and stuff, says nobody ever made a decision because of a number. They need a story. So it's interesting as we go back and we look at books written 2,000 years ago, in describing who Jesus was, Luke begins his first book, his gospel about Jesus, saying, I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write down an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And saying this is that I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to tell you, though, stories about Jesus. And our decisions have resonance. And I'm going to tell you that decision even resonates today because even when people are like, I don't like the church, I don't like people in the church, I don't look like, like what churches do, you will very, very rarely hear somebody who says, I don't like that Jesus. Jesus was full of himself. Jesus was a punk. Jesus is somebody that I have no care to talk about. In fact, you'll find people who hate all concepts of religion, but will say, you know that Jesus guy? He was somebody special, somebody different. Even those who disagree with the theology of the church will lean into Jesus. And I would offer that the reason that that happens is because they just told the stories about who he was with, what he did, and his persona resonated throughout the story. So understand as we begin this new book, the book of Acts, sometimes known as Acts of the Apostles, what Luke's interest in his second book, he's like, I've introduced you to Jesus. Now I want to show you how the people who lived with Jesus and followed Jesus lived out his philosophy. What does it look like to live out what Jesus taught? Um, that slide's in the wrong place. We'll see if I remember it. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It's not that it's dark up here. I am getting so close to cheaters now. Like, I am going to need bifocals or glasses soon. I've got to just, this is the Bible that I leave here. I've just got to get rid of it because it's so small. I'm so old. Verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift the Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with waters, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is how Luke begins. He kind of does a recap of what happened at the end. So at this point, Jesus is still on earth with his disciples. This is after he was killed. This is after he was resurrected. This is in that 40-day time period where he was still on the earth. And the way that Luke introduces the beginning of the end for Jesus before ascending to heaven is he's sitting there with a meal with his disciples. And this is interesting because if you remember, the last, one of the last things that Jesus did before he was arrested and then killed was he was having a meal with his disciples. And I think that just talks a little bit even about human nature too. Because let's be honest, if you're ever going to have like, you know, interesting conversation, meeting with people, doing it during meals is just an advantage, Right? Because even if you're like, I don't like what we're going to talk about, at least I can have some tortilla chips and salsa to keep this thing going. You're like, at the very least, I will be well fed and discomfortable, right? Like that's, that's how some of us perceive human conversation. But I think there's sometimes, I don't know if there's something, if you just think about food as a construct, like why is this something that we do every day? And even though we eat to we're filled, then we're hungry immediately afterwards. And then we have to do it three different times a day. And then we're just thinking about in the middle of the night, our anticipation of the meal that's getting ready to come ahead. Eating is weird, people. But at the same time, it brings out something in us. I think it exposes our humanity. And we see that Jesus is eating with his disciples. And by the way, there is a theological point within this because some people be, were like, you know, Jesus didn't really die. He like died. And then there's like, oh, there was this ghost left behind. And they were all hallucinating after, you know, the words. It's like, you know, they were all using Luke's drugs to trip out and be like, no, Jesus came back. We remember it. But then they have Jesus eating, which is to show, look, he wasn't a ghost. He was still alive, he was human, and he was consuming food because that's something that humans do. So you could say there's the theological thing. I like the whole meal metaphor. Pick your side and just roll with it. But either way, Jesus eating with his disciples, and he's telling them the last command that Jesus ever gives. Like, do you realize this? Like, Jesus gives a lot of teachings. And right here, at the beginning of the book of Acts, we get the last command that Jesus says. And his command is, do nothing. Jesus tells his apostles, don't do anything. Which if I was around the table that day, I'd be like, score because I'm awesome at not doing anything. Like I consume part of my Saturday following the command of Jesus. So the next time you're lazy, just say like, no, I am following the words and the command of Jesus to do nothing. Now, that might be off topic. That might not be biblical. I'm just telling you. So, why does he tell them to do nothing? And I think this comes back to human nature too, is that Jesus is getting ready to leave them. And that's going to be a dramatic change in their lives. I say dramatic, maybe even traumatic, right? Because this person who they've linked everything, they saw him die. They saw him resurrected. They're thinking about what can be, and Jesus is getting ready to leave. And very often in those traumatic shifts, what we end up doing is we try to fill the void in our mind through action. Do you do that? Like when I can't control something, I want to do something. For some of us, eating is a task that fills that void. For some of you, you're like, that's where I get my OCD cleaning from. When my mind is thought I want to do something mindless and I want to keep my hands active. I remember uh, my aunt uh, years ago took her own life and that was a traumatic thing in our family. And that night I went over to hang out with my parents I wanted to be with my dad because he lost his sister and I show up in the door and all of the floors were ripped out and he's like come on grab some plywood we're putting in new floors 
And I'm like, we've picked all, of all the times we could do this, we picked right now to replace the floors. And then as I got through it, I'm like, oh, this is how he is using action to try to replace this void so he doesn't have to think about what's happening. And I think Jesus knew that the disciples' shift was going to be, hey, Jesus is gone now. Let's do stuff. Let's be active. And what Jesus says is, hold your horses, slow down. Just for a while, just exist. Just be. Just be alone with your thoughts and see where that takes you. But I think the reason why this is important, because what he says will happen. He's like, you're going to wait. Don't do anything. And when you're waiting, eventually the Holy Spirit's going to come. And that's going to change everything. And by the way, it says here, you know, talks about John's baptism, then being baptized. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know, not to get too much into that, but the idea is that is when the Holy Spirit comes into it, it changes everything. It changes how you see life. It changes how you view relationships with others. It allows the Spirit of God to dwell within you. That's, that's life-changing. Jesus knows this. The disciples don't know the seriousness of this yet. But a couple things about this. The first thing is, I think it's important for us to see that the Holy Spirit is God coming down to earth yet again. So Jesus is going to ascend and leave the earth. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And since this happened, we'll read about this in the next few chapters in the books of Acts, God has dwelled here on earth through his believers. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, lives within followers of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is here. How does that work out, friends? I don't have the schematic. I don't know exactly how that works. That's what the scriptures teach. But when bad things happen in my life, that's how I know. When it's like, how do we cope? Because the Spirit is here. And I think that comes back to the promise that God even promised in the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 1, when God told his people, I will never leave or forsake you. You may feel alone, but God is telling you, I am with you, whether you recognize it or not. With the Spirit living inside of them, the, the God was with them. That's a powerful lesson. Can I tell you the other thing about this book that we're getting ready to go through? We're going to read, again, sometimes it's called The Acts of the Apostles, the things that the apostles does, but really that's a horrible title because really the star of this book is the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see a lot of things that people do, but the thread that intertwines all of them that weaves throughout the book of Acts is God's Spirit working often behind the scenes, yet as the star forefront. And as much as we want to say, okay, the Holy Spirit is like a side note to this. No, 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 no. God is central here. And then all the main characters, they're the extras. They're the ones showing up at 6 a.m. and getting their nice dress ready to go and getting their makeup ready to go and spending hours in the scene only to have a blip and maybe see the back of their head for a millisecond because they are not the true hero of the story. That's the story of the Bible, everybody. Jesus, God, is the hero of the Bible. All of us other parts, we're bit players. We're just along for the ride. Will you leave? This is where we're going to end the day here. Is it Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8? I like this too. Then the disciples gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the time or the dates of the Father that he has set on his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is why I love the book of Acts, guys. 
and this is something we have to read between the lines, the book of Acts starts with these chipper little apostles saying, Jesus, Jesus, is now the time for the kingdom? And that was the most self-serving thing they could have asked Jesus with their last question before he ascends to earth, or ascends from earth. So we'll cover next week, we'll we'll talk about next week, is that at this point, once this is over, boom, Jesus elevates up. Don't know how that works either. Don't know if, you know, if it's like he gets, he sprouts wings, however that works out. He just, he's going to ascend. It's going to happen, spoiler alert. But here's the interesting thing. You have one last question to ask Jesus, right? You know, and I'm just like, were there two shooters on the grassy knoll? That would be an inappropriate question, as much so as what the apostles ask. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? And you're like, how is that self-serving? Let's put ourselves in this. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. The Messiah for all the people of Israel. At that time, Israel was occupied by the Romans. The Roman Empire, which we studied about in school, the Caesars, right? Was over all of God's people. So they were being oppressed. The hope in Jesus as Messiah was the hope of a Messiah, a king that would come and reverse the rule of Rome that God's people would be back as a nation, as a kingdom again. That was the hope that the Jews had. And that's why they didn't like Jesus. Because they're like, we want this mighty Messiah. And Jesus was like, chill, the humble, the shepherd Messiah. And that's why they rejected him. So now his disciples are like, okay, Jesus, we saw it. You died, you resurrected, you're eating, so you're obviously healthy. Is now the time you're going to pull out a can, open it up, and just go medieval on these folks so that Israel can be on top again. Why are they asking this? Because if Jesus is the king, then his little Boy Scout troop, who are the right-hand guys to this, are no longer just schleps following around the country. They're more than fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. They're then, you know, like the knights of the first order to come where Jesus is the king. It increases where they're at. So you think like, oh, they're just interested in what's best for Israel. No, they want to know what's best for them. The book of Acts about the founding of the church starts with the self-centeredness of Jesus's followers. And they're like, hey, Jesus, is now the time where we're going to get, you know, we all get like secret sashes and we're going to just walk around the countryside and watch you like laser eye beam people. Like, is that what we're going to get? And Jesus is like, look, I don't even know the time. You know, like there are no watches. I don't know the date or the hour. And he goes, that's not even for me to know. That's not my shtick. Which is why in the first and second centuries, there's a bunch of Christians who are like, Jesus is coming back soon. So we're just going to, you know, have a, just have a great party and we're not going to work. We're not going to do anything because he'll come back soon. And we know that Jesus kind of sets it up because he's like, I'm not going to tell you the time. And they're like, well, it's got to happen now. Which by the by is why, like you've probably heard people. I heard the guy preaching on his speaker at the FC Cincinnati game. Jesus is coming back soon, right? Like people have been preaching that for years and soon has been lasting for 2,000 years. So I have no idea how this whole thing ends. The book doesn't let us know. Jesus doesn't let us know. But what is the last thing he tells his disciples? He tells them, look, I will tell you what will happen. Two things. Number one, the Holy Spirit's gonna come and fill you with power. So what he is doing is right-sizing the relationship for the apostles. You think that your closeness to me is what made you powerful, but you see me as like this king figure. I'm going to make sure that you project to the king father and the Holy Spirit is going to allow you to do that. Okay, so God is going to come and fill you with power. So your power will not be found in proximity to me, but by how the Holy Spirit lives in you. That's number one. Number two thing he says, you will be my witnesses. 
What's a witness? That's somebody who testifies on behalf of somebody else. So Jesus is like, hey, you might not be knights, but you'll be witnesses. And at this point, there's probably a letdown. And I think the letdown <laughs> increases when Jesus gets geographical on them, right? Like this is a map of the Mediterranean Sea, which was basically the extent of the Roman Empire at that time, right? So, so this is the known world to Jesus' disciples. And by the way, you know, it starts off with, Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And that dot is way too big. And it's really inaccurate because I couldn't even fit it on the map. Like Jerusalem, a little speck. And for the disciples, chances are, the most that they had traveled from Jerusalem was about 50 miles, right? So if your whole life had been lived somewhere between like here in Dayton, Ohio, you know, if that was everything, if you had never left that, that's actually what the apostles saw. And Jesus says, look, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Now he says Jerusalem, and by the way, they're in Jerusalem, so they're like, check, we're done. But the thing about this is going to be, Jesus is trying to say, hey, listen, my name, who I am, will be known first in the capital city of the people of God. So this is a testament to saying, look, I'm the Jewish Messiah, and you guys will testify that I was the Messiah right here in this city among the Jews who don't believe I was the Messiah. Which is funny because then it's like, you get to be my witnesses. And if you read the next few book backs, we're going to say, it does not work out well when they're like, hey, everybody, Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews do not react well to that. It's hostile. Then he goes one more. He says, and you will be also my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Again, and I will tell you this, for some of you cartography geeks, that circle is way too big for that region. Like that basically is supposed to encompass the totality of the area of Judea of which Samaria was a part. So it's about a 50-mile track, which is currently the land of Israel and disputed parts of Palestine, right? So, you know, just open up any newspaper. If anybody is fighting between the, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians, it's in this circle. But the interesting thing is Jesus doesn't say, you will be my witnesses in Judea. He says, in Judea and Samaria. Because if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, the Samaritans were not loved by the Jewish people. And actually, they were symbolic, not just of being pagans, but being lower than pagans because they were Jewish people who intermarried with pagans and that made them even more of an abomination. So Jesus is saying, hey, by the way, you will be my witnesses among the people that you hate the most. That's why at multiple times in the book of Luke, you have Jesus taking his little Boy Scout troop to the areas of Samaria. Why? Because Jesus is telling you, hey, you are going to tell people about me and you're going to tell the people that you hate the most because that's the point of my story. You think there are bad people out there? <laughs> Those are my people too. And you get the honor of being my witnesses to them. And then to take that one more step, we get the ends of the earth which I basically just yellow everything. Because at that time, the Iberian Peninsula was probably to them the extent of this. And a couple things happening here. Number one, Luke, he's using a storytelling method and he's giving away the end of the book. So at the beginning, he's going to tell you is that, by the way, this message is going to get all the way throughout the Roman Empire. And when we get to the 28th chapter of the book of Acts, we're going to find that Paul has actually made that a reality. So that this is going to happen. But what Jesus says is like, look, in saying to the ends of the earth, he is telling his disciples, you are obsessed with kingdom as it pertains to Israel, but my kingdom is so much, much larger, it's grander, it's robust than anything you can even imagine. 
because my story is not going to just stay here among God's chosen people now. It's going to reach the people that have never even heard of them. And the beautiful thing is that we are living in the age of Acts 29 to where that even step has happened now. Is that all throughout every time zone of this day across the world, people have done what we have done. They've gathered with the community of church. They've worshiped the risen Lord. They've read the scriptures. They've lived their lives to follow the great Messiah. So what Luke at the beginning is saying is like, look, this story's gonna shift. It's gonna be different. It's gonna be a story that you do not expect. That's why I like the book of Acts because we're gonna get this behind the scenes look at what it means for God's people to figure out what it looks like to build a community. And the Holy Spirit's gonna help, but I'll tell you guys, this is gonna be an ugly story too. Because you're like, oh, the Holy Spirit is there. That makes everything good in church. No, it doesn't, right? A lot of the baggage that all of us carry around as people who either follow Jesus or, or are attempting to follow Jesus is that we know so many examples of bad Christians that it puts a bad taste in our mouth, right? Like maybe you have a short list of, this is the church I no longer go to because I was with that group of Christians and they were so unlike Jesus that I could not be a part of them. Or maybe it's through social media, you see some example of a religious leader that says something ridiculous that you're like, why do I have to apologize for being a Christian because there's idiot Christians like that? And as much as we say, oh, that's a pariah on what it means to follow Jesus, I would offer that looking back at the book of Acts, it actually explains it all the better. Because what we see from the very beginning is that there was this group of people who tried to live like Jesus and they screwed it up at every single opportunity. And as a lifelong recovering screw up myself, all I see is amazing hope. Amazing hope and redemption. Because think about this. This story next week will introduce the next part of 11 dudes standing right on a hill And it's like, hey guys, by the way, the entire future of humanity is in your hands. And yet here we sit 2,000 years later and it worked out. No, 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 no. This isn't a story about human heroes. This is a story about the Holy Spirit. Because we humans would screw that stuff up really quickly. And that's why I believe that this book is a good look behind the scenes. Because your conception, your understanding, your beliefs about church need to be reconfigured. To understand is like, yeah, there's hypocrites full and the the churches are full of hypocrites, but man, it was like that from day one. And you you cannot negate the very amazing things that God was able to do despite flawed human beings. Can I do a parenthetical here? And that's why this is gonna play into next week is next week we're having a commissioning Sunday where we're uh, talking about our new elders and leaders. And I'm telling you all that plays right in the midst of this. Like we've got new teaching ministers, associate ministers, elders, and all of them are some screwed up people. But they're the very best amongst us who are screwed up, right? But it's this understanding is that the church is full of flawed people, but it is not their righteousness that ascends us to greatness, Right? No, 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 no. It's about the Holy Spirit. It's about God's act of redemption to make us better human beings. So don't misunderstand this story. This isn't a story of heroes. This is a story of one hero. It's a story of God who changes everything despite us. Man, friends, that's an interesting story. That's one that I believe is worth worth retelling. Now, one last thing about this, because just even doing 
you know, this look at it. This is we're looking behind the scenes. That's why I kept thinking about my wife's experience as being an extra because like I said, it was this whole, she was gone for 12 hours in a day and we can't wait to go to November to watch maybe the back of her head in a scene that lasts three milliseconds, you know? She's gonna tell the person in the theater like, pause that, rewind. I'm gonna see the back of my head two more times. We're gonna own a DVD of a movie that may or may not be good I think it might be Oscar-nominated. So you could be like, yes, the back of my head was in an Oscar-nominated movie. And yet you were stoked about it, and you still are. Because my wife is different. <laughs> because she just is like, hey, it's one of those little things. But I ask myself, like I pan out, it's like, isn't that just how it exists within the kingdom of God? Is that those disciples were asking, hey, Jesus, is now the time to restore the kingdom for us? Because they were like, we want to be stars. We don't want to be extras in the scene. We want to be front and center. And what's fun in this book and in the subsequent books that we read is that in some ways they do get what they want. But if you look at the life of the apostles, nearly all of them are killed because of their beliefs. The fortune among them are just persecuted and die in isolation. <laughs> you will be my witnesses. And they're like, yeah, that's great. Do you think if Jesus gave them the handbook on day one, they would be like, um, we're good with just, I'll just go back to fish. Fish is easier than this. This is the thing I think when we view ourselves in our lives, I think it becomes difficult for us because it's difficult for us to see our role. You're some talented people in this room. I'm proud and honored to like get to serve beside you. But man, I think we're just a room of extras. We're just in the room of extras, and there's nothing wrong with that. Because if we're extras, then the star, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, get to shine even more. And that star is the one who changes eternities for people. Question I leave you with today is that can you be content not to be the star? Are you okay with living life behind the scenes? Is it okay if what God has called you to now is as good as it gets? And some of you are like, I would like option C. But I think I just want us to camp out on this this week as we go through this. Because I'm telling you, if you can find that contentment to living life behind the scenes, then you will focus your vision on the God who transforms everything. And those dudes had no idea what stood in front of them. But God used women and men just like them to change the rest of our lives and our eternities. That's an amazing call. And when I get to heaven, I might you know, have to apologize. It's like, hey, guys, I gave you a rough time when I was preaching over the years. I told a lot of people how bad you sucked. But thank you for what you did because it changed everything about my life and my eternity. Can you be content? You have to be the star. Or is life behind the scenes enough for you? Words of the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter three. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all. Do it all. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we live that out this week? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm excited about this study and I'm excited because um, I love me some flawed stories. Like the anti-hero and I just view this book as you just see all these people that we perceive to be the greats, people that we have great uh, artistry about or statues that exist today, but they were just humble servants 
who lived lives of pain and sorrow just because they wanted to do everything they can to make sure that people found their way to your son, Jesus. Man, I I just find comfort for these people who live life behind the scenes. And I would ask that you help us this week to find that contentment. Father, help us to make the Holy Spirit the star of our lives. Help us to humble ourselves to admit that we don't need to be perfect because there is one who perfect, who is perfect, who gave everything, everything for us. Thanks for saving us in his name. Amen.